Welcome to the Kings Island Central Podcast, episode 16. On this episode, I am joined by Brad Perdue and special guest Jeffrey Siebert. Jeffrey was manager of communications and guest experiences at Kings Island from 1999 to 2005, and he is currently the park president of Six Flags Fiesta, Texas. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Jeffrey Siebert, Park President for Six Flags Fiesta, Texas in San Antonio and for Six Flags Hurricane Harbor, Splashtown, which is in Spring, Texas, which is a little bit north of downtown Houston. And I've been with Six Flags since 2012. And before that, worked for a variety of other companies such as Schlitterbaum Water Parks, Paramount Parks, a Disney Sports Division called Anaheim Sports, and Americana Amusement Park back in a beautiful Middletown, Ohio. So what originally brought you to work at Kings Island? There was a job opening. So I was actually recruited by some of the park management that was about to make some changes within the marketing leadership. So I had conversations. I asked, hey, would you want to come work at Kings Island? And who wouldn't? What a, what a great park and, and fun experience. So I was actually working for the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks when I received a phone call saying, hey, we are looking for some new marketing team members. What do you think about coming over to Kings Island, or in that day, Paramount's Kings Island. And lots of fun conversations, and the rest is history. So do you consider yourself a coaster enthusiast? Well, <laughs> yes. Short answer, <laughs> yes. I've, uh, like many of our fellow enthusiasts, had, I've always loved roller coasters. used to pretend my backyard was filled with rides. I used to go through wagons like water, because I would tie wagons together and pull my friends up and down hills. I remember the year that Cedar Point introduced Demon Drop. I dug a giant hole in my backyard. It would make my friends basically, I would run the wagon over that and they would just drop down in the hole, which as you can imagine for wagons, the wagons don't last very long when all of a sudden they're dropping down a few feet and the wheels are smashing into the ground. (laughs) That summer I went through quite a few wagons pretending I had Demon Drop in the uh, backyard. But I've been an ACE member since 1991 and have had a lifelong love affair like many of our fans and friends that, share a similar passion. Wow. What is your favorite ride at Kings Island and why? Well, interestingly enough, well, short to end to answer with your question, it's the beast. The beast by far is my favorite uh, coaster at Kings Island. But my first visit, which I did not visit because again, we lived in Northern Ohio. So I didn't get to visit Kings Island until the early nineties was my first visit. And I remember all my friends up north talking about the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? So I finally wrote it during the day and I was like, you know, that was really fun, but I wouldn't consider it anything overly crazy. And then I wrote at night and I'm like, holy moly. At at night, the beast personality just shine. I mean, there's out of all the night rides I've been on around the world, there's no doubt that ride just absolutely delivers when it's a hot summer's evening the moon is full she is just rattling against the rails and hauling and as you know by the design of that ride mankind tries to slow her down but the beast just keeps on roaring and picking up that speed as it drops more than 200 feet in elevation change from its highest point of the ride to the lowest point it just keeps roaring and when that thing is just rattling on those rails in those hot summer nights it really is just spectacular magic and just unlike anything else that I've written today. Well, if you've listened to our past podcast, we had Bill Medford on, and um, we kind of talked about his time that he was on uh, as an employee at Kings Island. So we're kind of going to do the same thing with you. We'll go over the years of um, your time at Kings Island, starting with 1999, talk about the changes that happened. So not only will people that are listening, learn a little bit about the history. Uh, We'll also get your perspective uh, as your time as the uh, communications and guest experiences person for the park. So in 1999, there was a big investment at Kings Island to completely revamp Adventure Village into then named Paramount Action Zone, today known as Action Zone. It was themed to a movie studio backlot to immerse you into the action of Paramount movies. Changes in that area include adding Face Off, today known as Invertigo, a Vacoma Inverted Boomerang Coaster. Additionally, Drop Zone, Stunt Tower, today known as Drop Tower, was installed and at the time the world's largest gyro drop from Intamin. 
Amazon Falls was renamed to Congo Falls and excess raceway became Days of Thunder. How do you market a total transformation of a full area of the park and two new rides at once? Well, one of the fun things with working Paramount Parks, which had alignment with the studio and Viacom, which was the parent company, it was a very synergistic company. The vision definitely was to take all these great collective assets and how do we bring them to life, which in really beginning in 1999, for lack of better terms, was really the impetus of the whole Paramountization of, of doing that. Where before that, there was some, there was obviously Top Gun, there was Days of Thunder, there was some level of it. But really beginning in 1999 with Viacom and all the access to all their brands, they really wanted to begin transforming select parks even faster. And no doubt Kings Island being the flagship park was a great place for reinvestment. And not only could folks come and experience these great brands, but it was really one of the first places that you can touch and hug. Uh, you can hug a, a Rugrats character from the Nickelodeon side and actually experience the thrills of the movie. And really in 1999 was the first kind of large impetus to begin that process. So that's where the collection with using some of the brands that the studios had and then eventually with CBS began. But it was, it's called a collection strategy. It's taking a whole bunch of great rides and putting them into a signature area, but also redesigning that area to bring into new life and new excitement. So there was lots of fun introducing the collection of rides and experiences. Drop Zone is still scary for me to ride today. It's a fun, fast ride. And no doubt just the stomach drenching sensation that that offers is really fantastic. And the heights from being over 300 feet tall. And one of the cool features that we didn't know was actually going to happen was at the bottom of the ride. For anyone that's actually stood and waited in line, you know that when, when Drop Zone comes down, it actually captures the air and, yeah. it and it hits the ground. So if you're standing in a queue, the first time we were testing, all of a sudden you see those hats blowing off and it just offers this really <laughs> cool kind of unintended effect of this really neat gust of air. So that was yeah. kind of the fun things that we realized with that ride experience. Originally, the ride, we didn't know that stairs were going to be needed. So stairs, actually, believe it or not, the ride was designed for flush loading, which anyone that's ridden today knows that it really didn't accomplish a flush loading. Uh, it's kind of high up there. So yeah. those stairs were actually added um, after the ride was installed because it did not achieve the flush loading concept where the ride was originally purchased. Oh, but wow. also when you did the stairs, it also then accentuated the way that the air is kind of flowing out because it almost builds a ramp, if you will, pushing the air further away from the ride, which created that effect. So as we design and build rides, you just never know uh, when you have to do some things like that. And of course, <laughs> face-off, just the amount of forces that are on face-off, when that was installed was just uh, really impressive. Although there were boomerangs before that or boomerang-style rides, no one had seen a ride like that where you actually get to face each other. So in its day, it was truly innovative. And of course, the thrill of just watching that thing fly through the station was somewhat unique for the visitors that were visiting Kings Island at the time um, in, in that experience. And then taking other rides that were loved like Congo River and retheming that to different life. Of course, what had happened with the install of Top Gun and the theming that was made by John DeCure who actually did the theming for the movie Top Gun. And of course, later coming back in the following year with another large prototype installation uh, was, was definitely exciting to be a part of. What were the challenges for you and the park when it um, when opening Paramount Action Zone? You talked about uh, drop tower with the stairs. Was there any other issues that came up opening such a big area of the park? Well, you may recall that one of the features that originally had was a stunt show. As part of it, there was actually kind of a, a fake gun stunt show that occurred. But sadly, at the time of launch, there were incidents in the United States around the world that uh, we made the decision to remove that feature. So the stunt show may have only lasted maybe 30 days when it originally opened. Oh, but yeah. it just appeared that having guns and that level of sensitivity with what was happening around the country uh, didn't appear that uh, it was probably the best idea to be hosting a, a gun style gun show at the time. So it was yeah. removed and the tower actually became dormant, but there were actually zip lines originally off the tower. There were fire effects that came off the tower and a variety of different things that were initially integrated and planned that quickly uh, were removed that year. But besides that, it was a, a fun install and very well received to guests and it delivered attendance and it delivered uh, what we had hoped that it would. And then it did become the catalyst to a lot of other fun, innovative attractions based on CBS and Paramount Pictures uh, over the next run. 
Mm. In May of 1999, Son of Beast was introduced to the world by Montel Williams. What was the reasoning for bringing Montel in to help announce this new attraction? Well, that was a question for Bill Meffert because I, I joined the company actually after that. So I was not there with uh, Montel Williams, but at least my understanding was that he had been to the park multiple times with his family and friends. He really liked Kings Island. So he'd actually fly his staff there on occasion because he loved the park so much and he loved thrill rides. So from my understanding, that was one of the reasons why Montel uh, was brought in because he was a fan of the park to begin with. So who better talk about a rides innovation than someone that comes and and plays in the park on a regular basis. Uh, And he would do that. He would come multiple times. There were times where he would bring his staff and his crew and, or it was just him and his family come to play and enjoy the park. Hmm. That's really cool. Maybe we need to try to get Montel on the show. <laughs> there you go. What was the marketing team uh, team's approach to keeping Son of Beast in the minds of guests after the announcement? You know, wh- what did you guys do to keep building that anticipation before the next season? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that you may have recalled or for fans of the parks have seen. One was the building of a large signature crate that stood at the entrance of the ride that would shake and growl and howl while guests were coming as part of the announcement. They had giant chains on it that would rattle and shake. So there's some really fun uh, in-park initiatives that were done in anticipation of Son of Beast opening. And then it really was highlighting those milestones of the ride as it was under construction. Uh, some planned, some unplanned, as uh, it was definitely a very large uh, construction project uh, throughout the, it was actually more than a year in construction and it was several years in design and elements. One of my favorite stories was when discussing the ride before announcement, no one would refer to the loop. The loop was actually a removable part of the model that was referred to as the special feature. So the model was obviously quite large sitting in an office, but anytime the meetings were over, the loop would actually be pulled off and stuck in a drawer. So if anyone (laughs) happened to see the model, it would look just like a large wooden coaster. No one would have seen the loop, which in uh-huh. you know, the loop itself, if, if it was standing in the park, would dwarf most of the rides at the time of Kings Island, or I would say would tower over the rides at Kings Island because the loop itself was over 120 feet tall, which would be enormous, except in Son of East case where it was sitting next to a lift hill that was more than 208 feet tall. So yeah. the ride itself dwarfed it in stature. But that was one of the fun things with building the model was just referring to the special feature where most people would have no idea what that you would talk about. What special feature? What you know, what does that mean? In Son of Beast's case, the special feature was obviously the vertical loop. Hmm. Going into the 2000 season, Son of Beast was set to open on April 14th, but construction delays led to it opening April 28th. Tell us how, from a marketing point of view, you had to handle that late ride opening. Well, there's no doubt that Son of Beast had a personality of its own from day one. <laughs> it had <laughs> unique construction challenges, which someday I'll, I can write a book on just on the construction of that ride in itself, no doubt. But anytime a, a signature attraction is delayed, as you can imagine, there's great disappointment, not only from the guests, but the park team, because there was there's a lot of expectation, a lot of excitement when you're building the world's tallest, fastest wooden roller coaster and the only one with a, a vertical loop. So it, it was disappointing and deflating for everybody. So to go back in the market and talk about, hey, here's what we're working on, here are the milestones, um, we're hoping to get the ride open as, as soon as we quit, as soon as we possibly could, um, no doubt is disappointing for guests and park team alike. How did it impact the marketing? Well, it delays everything. You delay your TV spots, you delay your radio spots, you have to do your creative in different ways because you then have to relaunch with more what we call general park messaging, which is just talking about, in that case, Kings Island in general. So instead of talking about Son of Beast, you're talking about all the other great reasons to visit or come ride the beast, come ride the vortex, free water park that's included with park admission. It becomes more of a generalized message. Obviously that time was uh, supposed to be all about come experience, son of beast, biggest, baddest roller coaster on planet earth. And right. that messaging, it couldn't. And as you know, there's only so many days in the summer. So every day that passes by, you lose the opportunity to really leverage the excitement of, of adding those new additions. Right. Looking back, would you have changed anything about the way the ride was marketed to the park guests? Not from a marketing perspective. It was really fun and innovative uh, for the day. It won several different types of industry awards. Uh, No doubt the park team and our agency at the time decided to play off of more of a Rosemary's Baby kind of concept where you had the giant looming lift hill. And on top of that lift hill was the baby carriage. 
for those that haven't seen the commercial, the commercials on YouTube, which it really is just that. You see this baby carriage with a with a little furry claw that's kind of shackled. And as the camera pulls back, you see this baby carriage silhouetted on top of a giant lift hill with a very riveting music, kind of an ominous sky. And then it goes into the superlatives of the ride, which again is the tallest, fastest, only looping wood coaster in the world with a very large, booming, cinematic style voice. Now, there was a thread on KI Central talking about that baby carriage coming from a movie. Is that true? I can't remember what movie it is. I don't believe so. It was stylistically designed after Rosemary's Baby, but it was not actually a working movie prop. It was created just for the commercial shoot. Gotcha. So how did that experience with Son of Beast and the delays and such with that, did that change the way you marketed future rides at the park or not really? Well, there's a whole variety of things that you just learn. And for example, after that, we began using technical rehearsal days for rides and attractions, some soft opening types of tactics. Specifically, I believe when we opened the Italian job, we did a series of previews and other things leading up to the ride. And then you hosted the grand opening. Where at that time, there was more of the thought that the grand opening had to be the first time it was open to the general public. Well, now you look around the industry, Universal Studios, Disney, you'll see much more of the technical rehearsal and soft opening where guests really do ride the experience long before the grand opening. And, and many parks have done that. But really at Kings Island, that was one of the first things and one of the first key learnings out of that was as other rides were added, we adopted more of the soft opening technical rehearsal concept. So you really have that time for previews and then you do the more grandiose, um papa grand opening when it was uh, really time, like we did with the Italian job stunt track. Right. Also new in 2000 was Fear Fest. Tell us about marketing a new Halloween event in a seasonal amusement park. Well, that was just fun in itself because there were really two camps when it came to Halloween events because many parks hadn't done them. There was the camp of, oh no, our guests aren't going to want it because it's too scary. So the families that are visiting aren't going to like it and they're going to tell us very quickly they don't like it. And then of course there's the other camp, which is, well, it's a Halloween event. So those that are coming are the ones that are actively seeking out to be scared and horrified. So I remember one of my, one of our first days, we decided to really begin teasing it. So we put in uh, International Street, different pieces and props of ghouls and monsters that had only half their torsos and kind of organs coming out and some other stuff at the front gate. And I remember standing up there with a lot of our management team waiting to see what the guest response would be. And there were actually covers on standby behind the scenes that if indeed guests were coming in and were complaining, we would cover the items until we could physically remove them. And I remember, I kid you not, it was like the second guest in was a mom with her kids. And we're like, oh, here it comes. And the mom <laughs> took her kids over there and they looked at it and then they posed for a photo. And they were all having fun. <laughs> like, you know what? I think we're all going to be just good. And that's exactly what happened. It was just the really our audience and guests Love the fun spirit of Halloween. Obviously, if you're coming to a Halloween event, you want to be scared. You want to be terrified. And none of us have really pushed it to the point where we've had uh, guests upset that, you know, we've pushed it too far. So we're constantly looking at dialing up Halloween events and no doubt introducing Fear Fest back in the day was a real fun opportunity to create something that our guests had never seen before, which were a collection of haunted houses and scare zones. And you may recall in those early days, we actually even had one at the top of the Eiffel Tower, which was fun and scary in itself that kind of finished underneath. But uh, it was a lot of fun introducing that. And we were all involved. I mean, truly was one of those that there weren't a lot of suppliers. So if you wanted to have it built, guess what? You had to go out and build it. So I remember working our haunted trail with at that time, the general manager, Tim Fisher, and we're putting up sticks and tree branches and making things in the woods, uh, <laughs> trying to create these scare pockets for people to hide in with chainsaws. So it was, uh, again, just fun to see it from the ground up. And now here we are all these years later, and I think everyone, it's one of the most fun times to visit theme parks is to go to the Halloween events because they just look so different from the decorations, the sights, the sounds, the decor, and just the overall atmosphere. It's really exciting to be a part of. Yeah, the park definitely transforms <clears throat> into something completely different for Fear Fest and now Halloween Haunt. Uh, not as much as uh, Winterfest at this point. Uh, I didn't think they could transform any better, but <laughs> they definitely seem to have taken that to a new level. 
All right. Well, let's fast forward to 2001. In 2001, Nickelodeon's Platte City and a segment of Rivertown became Nickelodeon Central. Tell us about that transformation. Well, and at that point, Nickelodeon had become very well established, had many hot and top rated kids and family programs, and they were looking to really enhance the relationship with the parks. Because again, just that tangible nature of hugging Chucky and Angelica and the whole Rugrats cast, but they also then, the Wild Thornberries were premiering, SpongeBob basically, which still does have a life of his own. And they really were looking to integrate them in much more meaningful, impactful ways versus, you may recall the Splat Cities, or a smaller extension off of the Hanna-Barbera Lane concept. So it really was, let's make an entire mega area with new signature attractions and brand it all Nickelodeon to the most popular TV shows. At that time, the log flume needed some significant uh, reinvestment. Mm -hmm. It had deteriorated in age. It was still using the original aero fiberglass and wood for its flume. And it was time that it needed to be replaced. And there were conversations of, should it just be removed or should it be reimagined? Well, as you can imagine, myself and quite a few others like, no, you cannot remove the log flume. I mean, it's a true staple, the number three log flume ever built. It's still extremely popular. So we felt that it had a win-win opportunity, which is a great conveyance device that our guests already love. Now let's just take it to a different level. So in many ways, it was the Wild Thornberry's conversion that saved that ride. Without the Wild Thornberry's conversion, I probably could not have convinced our own company, along with others, that the ride was worth saving uh, because of the expense of putting in a whole new trough. I mean, if you look at the ride today, the entire, the only thing that's original are primarily the station and the two hills Everything else was new. The trough was all new. So to spend that type of reinvestment, the way to save it was because of the theming. And no doubt it was the right decision. With the Wild Thornberries and the current theming today, the ride still is extremely popular. Young and old love it. It's just a fantastic ride. So one, that was great that we were able to do that and continue the Kings Mills Log Flume legacy by putting the Nickelodeon brand on it. But in true Kings Island fashion, we needed a new signature innovative ride. And at that time, Vacoma was coming up with this new family inverted coaster concept uh, that Kings Island had been working on and Paramount had been working on with them. And we were able to bring that to life, which, which at the time was the Rugrats Runaway Reptar roller coaster, which was the first of its kind in the world. And immediately became a fan favorite. Guests loved it. And the theming was fun with the big Reptar dinosaur standing and stomping on top of the ticket booth. And again, just a love extension. But not only then, but it was a great time to reinvent uh, with SpongeBob and just make the whole area even more spectacular, which then led to, as you know, another expansion because that area became so popular, it led to an additional expansion later to really keep up with the demand of those rides and experiences. Sadly, during that transition, we did lose Ghoster Coaster, which was the first suspended kids coaster for kids. I don't know if you guys ever had the opportunity to ride Ghoster Coaster. Mm -hmm. Again, fun, but truly you got in line and the line was nothing more than signs telling you you're about to wait 90 minutes for something that lasts 15 seconds and you'd step and it, it was i mean the line was long it only took two people at a time and guests yeah. wanted to ride it but uh guess dissatisfaction was rather significant because of the time commitment to ride that attraction so it, it really did need to go away and be replaced by something that was more meaningful right well i'm glad you uh talked them into keeping the log flume <laughs> well, it was myself and others and no doubt, it was it, there were a lot of interesting conversations and it could have easily gone and truly it came down to a side conversation where i was talking with our senior leadership of do you really i mean literally they were looking me in the eye saying do you really believe you can we can retheme it and you could remarket it without hesitation i said absolutely and in many ways that's led to many things that now we do throughout the industry that we have proven you can take a great conveyance device rebrand it, retheme it, and take it to different life and market it in, in new ways. But that really is the secret sauce. It really does need to be a great conveyance device and a fun brand. Many parks throughout history have tried to take conveyance devices that aren't fun and are disappointed when their retheming doesn't work. It's like, well, no one liked the ride. By changing and thinking, if people don't like the ride, they don't like the ride experience. So, but Fortunately, in Kings Island's case, we knew, oh my gosh, that ride's been running for generations. We know people love it. Now let's just take it to the next level. Hmm. Another change that happened in 2001 was flight of fears over the shoulder restraints were removed. 
and changed to lap bars to reduce guest complaints. How did, from a marketing standpoint, you market that and what was the guest reaction? Well, and it, what's interesting is that was actually an innovation from Son of Beast. That's the one thing that the Son of Beast legacy will all live on for was the development and design of that for the premier ride trains, which we call perimeter surveillance vehicles or PSVs. So that's what the actual trains on Son of Beast were known as. And with Premier and with them building those trains, that was one of the stipulations is that it could not use an over-the-shoulder harness, that we didn't need to come up with a different ride encapsulation design that can hold riders upside down in a comfortable fashion. So Premier actually came up with that Z design, which is on many, many coasters now across the world, which to test it, we actually built a Son of Beast test train, had a whole bunch of different body types in it, and literally we just flipped the train upside down and held everyone inside to prove that it can encapsulate even if the ride would come to a complete stop upside down. Hmm. Because the body is in a Z position, which means your knees are slightly elevated uh, versus the torso of your body. So you actually sit in a true Z position and that's what that restraint system did. It proved so successful, as you know, that we began retrofitting uh, the launch coasters and not only at Paramount Parks, but that retrofit had carried on now throughout the world and removing the over-shoulder harnesses and in many ways took rides that guests were not overly excited about riding. And now to this date, they're extremely popular. And as you know, at Six Flags VS in Texas, we actually have Flight of Fear's sister called Poltergeist. And Poltergeist also, the over-the-shoulder harnesses were removed and it runs the lap bar. And now that ride, again, is extremely popular to date. It opened here in 1999. And we're actually looking to making it more horrific and more exciting as we get ready for our 30th anniversary. But the ride is still extremely loved. But that was one of the big innovations uh, that came out of Son of Beast was that design of that restraint system. Speaking of Flight of Fear, um, in that year you also took the Outer Limits name, was was dropped off of Flight of Fear. What was the reason for that and did anyone even really notice? That was, um, some guests did, but that was on the later end where that brand was no longer licensed as part of the family. So that's why that transition occurred before the actual Cedar Fair acquisition is because the, that TV show was kind of a one-off and not fully licensed under the rest of the Viacom umbrella. Hmm. In 2002, a new indoor thrill ride, Tomb Raider the Ride, opened on the former spot of Kenton's Coquilla Canal in Rivertown. The ride ended up being a giant top spin manufactured by Hoos and would take the name of the crypt in 2008 after the removal of the Paramount names. And then the ride would eventually be removed at the end of the 2011 season. Tell us your marketing strategy for marketing this new innovative ride in a seasonal amusement park. Well, the first thing was just the mystery of it all. If you've watched any of the promotional teasers or trailers, the fact that we were able to do this in a building really helped keep the mystery and the mystique specifically amongst our fan base. Because again, if you think about that back in the day, YouTube was just starting. There really was no social media at all. So it really was creating fun and innovative ways of communicating this specifically to the fan base um, at the time, along with our general park guests. But the, one of the aspects that we did have was no one knew what the heck we were doing. So we teased the heck out of it. Of what is it? You know, <laughs> what is it going to be? So one of the fun things we added was actually this giant uh, entrance experience. If you entered International Street back in the day, we built this entire entire Tomb Raider preview area that showed basically uh, some of the movie props along with giant key art where you see riders kind of at angles going into what looks like sharp stalactites and things exploding. And it kind of gave you the emotional connection of what it was going to be, but no one really knew what the conveyance device was. And at the time, Hoos came out with a kind of giant land of giants series that you may recall uh, that they pitched which was a series of oversized rides and experiences and the giant top spin was the first in the series to actually get purchased with the idea that we could basically create a moving theater that can flip you upside down and put riders into different types of sequences and scenes the gondola was huge 77 seats stadium styled i mean heavily raked where your feet were truly by the guest in front of you's head versus a more modest. So it was truly theatrical as far as the design of that ride uh, went. And then it was all the theming and storytelling. And it was great 
the true collaboration on that ride with Paramount Pictures. Uh, Angelina Jolie was involved. She actually commented, you know, in her, her organization commented on what scenes could be used, what scenes couldn't be used, what they felt was appropriate for the audience, what wasn't. So it was truly a, a tag team effort with everyone being involved to create this seamless experience. And the level of theming really had not been done at a regional theme park to that magnitude to date, where we had the actual movie uh, Range Rover as part of the entrance experience. The set pieces of props came from Pinewood Studios where the movie was, was made. And then creating the whole cinematic ride experience where you had a variety of different pre-shows that each time the pre-show would continue, it led you deeper into the ride experience where you went from the antechamber with a big stone door rolling open and fog pouring out with the alignment on the door to the next area where the big statue, the monitor would rise and you would see more of the pre-show of what's happening where you're fighting against good versus evil, fire versus ice. And then just at the culmination of that, the final giant stone door would raise, the catwalks would lower, and you'd get onto some piece of machinery that really most guests were like, I have no idea what I'm getting into. I have no idea what this thing is about to do. All I can see is that I'm sitting basically in the dark with lights blinding me in my eyeballs, and I'm putting down an over-the-shoulder harness. What is this thing going to do? And then when the ride began, it truly did surprise our guests. They had no idea that it was going to be flinging them up, flinging them upside down, going into the volcano sequence. It really was a fun way of storytelling. Disappointingly, the ride itself could not perform the way that it was intended and did lead to extended downtime and did lead to performance challenges um, that most likely eventually was the demise of the ride. But at least when we were there, we were able to run it in a configuration that it could perform to the level at least that it needed to, but sadly the ride truly never performed the way that it was designed. And as you know, to history, no other version of that ride was ever purchased. That was the one and only that was ever created on planet earth, but it was, it was massive. Again, if that was sitting outside, you'd be like, oh my gosh, it was just such a massive impressive structure that sadly most guests never got to see. At the bottom of the ride, there was actually a safety envelope area that we could stand down there and watch it. And just watching it perform inside the building is just amazing. Hmm. The amount of technology that was required because that ride had on each arm three independent motors that all have to talk with each other to work in pure synchronous to make the ride work. So in some ways, it's basically like telling six rides, they have to do the same exact thing at the same exact time to make it do what it wanted to. And at that time, the technology speed of the, of the synchronization was just hard for the motors to communicate all at the same time to perform the way that it needed to. And that afforded some challenges just more with the technology of at that time, how do you have landlines connect the wireless and the wireless speed is coming in different than the hardwire and all those nuances that you really don't think need to be taken into consideration when building rides. But that ride did incorporate a lot of technology that in some ways was working against the ride's performance. Hmm. So when you were saying it was one and only, it's like it's the one hit wonder ride. Uh, but the mystery of of it stayed even years after it had opened up because uh, I remember being in the park and years after it opened up, people were still walking around with the park maps in their hand going, what is inside there? Is it a coaster? Is it a, you know, what is going on in there? And it's not a coaster, but you still want to go give it a try, you know. All right, let's fast forward to 2003. There was another addition to Action Zone at the former site of King Cobra uh, with a giant frisbee called Delirium. What was the guest reaction to Delirium? It was huge. And so much so that as you can see, that concept has been moved, lifted and shifted to by other manufacturers to create versions of their own ride. But in the day, again, that was one that came out of the giant series. So it was the second edition that Kings Island had for the giant attractions from Hoose Rides at the time. Um, and it was a significant hit from day one. Our, the guests loved it, the fun experience, just the, the placement of it, swinging over the midway walkway, and no one had really seen anything like it to date. We've seen smaller versions that were at some parks, but no one had seen anything like that. And the pure power of the ride back in its day uh, performed very well. Where now, for example, fast forward here at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas, we now have the world's largest version of that ride, which is our Joker Carnival of Chaos, which is, it towers over what Delirium 
is back in the day. But again, back in the day, it was the tallest fastest of its kind. But it's been great to see how the technology has advanced. And right. the tall version is the Giga Discovery by Zamperla. Um, that for example, in our case, we've got a fun fun house, interactive fun house that you walk through before the ride. But the ride is still even more popular today than it was when we originally launched the concept. We here, for example, we have our main queue, and then we've got an overflow queue, and then we have an overflow queue to the overflow queue because of how popular the ride experience really is. It's just fun, over the top, and and crazy. Specifically, when you start getting the heights and speeds that we are on now, that we're now offering uh, today. Also in 2003, Phantom Theater was replaced by Scooby-Doo and the Haunted Castle. What was it like convincing fans of Phantom Theater to give the new Scooby ride a shot? Well, what was interesting is much of what Paramount did in many theme parks, you do things based on research. And when we're evaluating rides, we look at a variety of different criteria. Ridership, is the ride just as popular today from a throughput standpoint as it was? maintenance costs of what it costs to keep the ride in a good working condition and in that case also the theming and then you also look at guest satisfaction what guest satisfaction is coming out of the ride and what are guests saying about it currently well sadly for phantom theater ridership was a small fraction of what it used to be it did have a small loyal base but it was quickly becoming a skipped over attraction that was requiring ongoing uh, one-off maintenance specifically for the themed elements because everything was custom design there weren't parts sitting on a shelf specifically of the costumes and the masks which means the lead time for replacement took a lot longer because everything had to be recreated again it's not like they could have said uh, back in the day we need a new head for maestro and they just go and oh maestro we just pulled off the shelf and here you go it's oh my gosh we have to one go find where we put the mold at the manufacturer or who if the company was sold now who has that mold if they do and in some cases, they'd come back and say, you know what, we, we can no longer produce that. We no longer, no one here can find the mold. So it then leads to just other things. Okay, so they go back and reverse engineer the mold. How much is that going to cost? What is the lead time? So the decision was made, declining popularity, not impactful from a guest standpoint, and it, it started falling apart. It was at a point, it was a decade. It had already been open for 10 years, believe it or not, that standpoint. So it was time to renew again. And so that's where the Scooby concept came from was let's go through, let's create a fully sculpted castle. The original design for that ride was artistic flats. And the construction manager at that time, Sam Adukowitz, really made a pitch instead of doing just artistic flats, which a lot of dark rides had done before. He was the one that really championed to do the fully sculpted castle because at that time, uh, phone carving just was kind of emerging where big routers are being used to carve sections of foam in any configuration that can then be hard-coded and designed to create things. And that was relatively a newer theme park design. So he actually championed that. And that's why the ride was built with that really cool front castle uh, was because of that new technology that just emerged. And then redoing and rebranding the ride experience on the inside uh, to Scooby was very fun. It, we had hoped that the ride would become more popular. The ridership far exceeded expectations. The ride became extremely popular. So it was, again, great rebranding. It was marketable, but also that year, you may recall, not only, as you said, not only was Scooby there, but it was also Delirium. And we added a new ride in the Paramount Action uh, Theater as well. So it really was three different things to market that had different audiences. That was, that was a lot of fun to do. But it was time to give that building and ride a refresh based on guest expectations and ridership. Hmm. In 2003, another significant historical event for KI Central would be the start of our website, pkicentral.com. How did Kings Island react to pkicentral.com once it you know, came on the scene and uh, started gaining members? Well, and like many things, we hopefully you guys have heard the stories. We immediately embraced PKI Central and try to give them exclusive access to events and opportunities. And really to see an insider perspective of what it was like a little bit more behind the scenes from a from a what's going on to the theme park perspective and at that time then more and more different enthusiast organizations started specifically as social media and websites began to pick up and it's been fun to see that continued growth and development of just giving a little bit more insider baseball perspective and pulling the curtain back to offer conversations like this just things that are fun anecdotes or stories behind why things happen but also just seeing and being more intimate with the construction and design, doing construction tours when rides are being built, 
I believe we invited PKS Central to come out during, for example, Italian Job Stunt Track. And we actually had people sitting on the track and taking pictures in the parking lot before construction, but also doing hard hat tours and those types of things. And those are all things that are fun to continue to do and really began from day one of the group being formed. In 2004, Waterworks was rebranded as Crocodile Dundee's Boomerang Bay. What were the challenges with marketing the new water park? Well, and what was fun is it really sold itself because of the scope. It, if you recall, the water park was somewhat divided in the middle. So there was an original section, and then there was a long walkway underneath high tension lines, and then there was another section over there. So it really was trying to bring those sections together, but also adding signature new attractions. So, for example, the big tornado slide, the giant lounging water area that was installed, plus there was a big kids play structure. So there was some really cool signature elements that the water park really needed just to become better. And the big thing really was lounging. The water park did not have a lot of lounging area. There were concrete walkways and there was some lounging area around the original wave pool, but it just needed more lounging. When we did research, that's what guests were saying. We just want more areas to hang out. We want to lounge, we want to get wet. We want to be able to just hang out in water, not necessarily have to get out. So basically all of the amenities were added based on guest research. So it was not a hard sell at all. Basically we had to say, hey, we basically built what you told us to build and, and guests immediately continued to flock, which has led to the continued explosion of that water park. We also added its own standalone gate as a test, which uh, you may recall today was basically a hole in the fence. I kid you not, it was really a hole in the fence and the admissions booth was an old food location that wasn't used just to see if guests wanted to come in as a standalone entrance. And truly that parking lot would fill up quickly right outside that our guests love just having that access to come in. And for those that know Kings Island, the water park is a hall to get to. You either take the Kings Island train or you have a long walkway past the picnic road. So being able to have direct access was also game changing for that facility and really aided to its uh, explosive growth that has continued I imagine being sought today. Hmm. So 2004 was the final season for the Antique Cars and Flying Eagles. The vehicles from Antique Cars were later relocated to World's Fun and the Flying Eagles were excuse me, relocated to Carolyn's. Why were they not kept at KI and was that a bad idea? Well, and it, it was definitely a sad decision to say the least because no one at Kings Island wanted to see them go. And we made a variety of pitches of how they could all be integrated together. And as you know, by looking at the Italian job stunt track or the stunt track site, you could see that where the Flying Eagles were was untouched. Originally, we right. had thought that that section was going to be touched and need to be relocated. Sadly, what eventually really caused that ride to be moved was the fact that they were already committed to Carowinds as part of their Nickelodeon expansion. So because that commitment was already made, the company did not want to spend additional money to buy a new flying scooters. And so sadly we, we lost the park team. That was one of the few times where the park team lost both battles, <laughs> but we, we did not get our wish of being able to maintain both of those attractions at some level. The real ask was the flying scooters. There's no doubt between those two, we had a lot of passion and there was lots of just internal disappointment that this ride, which began its career at Coney Island and was moved to Kings Island, uh, was relocated really unnecessarily. So that the good news is the ride is obviously still operating in existence today. So for fans, it's still there running in its, its glory, but it was extremely disappointing for the park team to lose those two classic attractions. Uh, right. Italian job stunt track, but we really did hope and we had plans that showed, hey, we can integrate these things relatively cost effectively, but at the end of the day, it was uh, ultimately denied. Hmm. 2004 was also the final season of the Kings Island campground to make way for the $100 million Great Wolf Lodge Resort. What were the challenges in marketing this new partner property? Well, and it was really seamless. I mean, Great Wolf was a fantastic partner. Viacom at that time was actually part owner of it. So it was truly a symbiotic, synergetic relationship between the two. It was just another giant amenity that made perfect sense with the theme park full integration, the fact that they were next to each other, complimentary audiences. Now we've got overnight accommodations that seamlessly lead and build to attendance of the park. It really was uh, just another way of continuing to anchor Warren County as a tourism destination. Hmm. 
2005 saw the introduction of Italian Job Stunt Track. Were there any specific challenges with marketing this family-friendly launch coaster? One, it was people didn't know what the heck Italian Job was, which <laughs> is good and bad in, in some ways. The movie was had several remakes. The movie was very solid, but just the name itself didn't necessarily lead to what it was. But it gave us a unique opportunity to really play off the spirit of the heist. And you may recall some of our efforts in teasing it really was that, including on the opening day, having Brinks trucks come out, folks parachuting down from the sky and landing on the site. There are lots of fun things that we did that played off the movie, but also kind of had that spirit of a heist, if you will, and taking advantage and then the ride itself paying off kind of that finale scene of the ride, which is the street chase. And it was also more heavily themed, so building a variety of effects with the fire effects, and the uh, different action scenes that the ride had, the parking garage. It was a fun, broad family ride experience that uh, was fun to market and to announce and eventually open. Hmm. So once Italian Job opened and people realized it was a, a coaster, uh, how many complaints were there and disappointments from guests who were not happy that Les Taxi was no longer there and the Flying Eagles? Very few. There were very few guest comments at all. That's that's the other thing that always, you know, is sad from someone that's more of the enthusiast vein. It pains us to see some of these things, but in reality for the guests, there was no pain point. There really was not a large contingent of folks. We had some folks that were disappointed, but that was one of the reasons that we also did goodbye events for the ride. That was one of the other innovations that kind of came out of that time was before that parks really weren't doing goodbye events. They were just in the cloak of darkness during winter months, rides would just disappear. Well, we truly believed that the ride was loved enough that we should do a series of goodbye events, knowing that we would get more of the up upset folks at that point to right. try to mitigate it when the ride would open. And that was successful in doing that. People were obviously disappointed, but at least they had the opportunity to come say goodbye, ride it one final time, which did lead for a smoother transition when Italian Job actually opened. And you can see parks still utilize those strategies today. Some parks truly, they don't want to have to deal with it all. So they just kind of do the cloak of darkness that's gone. For <laughs> others, we do goodbye events and just, hey, it, it is finally time that the ride is retiring to its own pastures and, and come ride. Hmm. 2005 saw the reintroduction of a popular winter event at Kings Island with Winterfest. Were you involved in the planning of this new version of Winterfest? Uh, version 2.0, yes, which of course, as you know, has got a version 3.0. And no doubt the event today is is absolutely spectacular. And version 2.0 was much spectacular than its its predecessor event with what was introduced. But also it was based on guest research. It was what do guests want to see? What do guests remember from the previous event? And what would they like to see uh, in the future event? Um, and again, uh, at that time, it was fun to create all those custom decor and elements and really begin the spirit of Winterfest again. Um, as well. At that time, I then left Six Flags, or I didn't leave Six Flags, I left Paramount because the company was getting ready to be sold, and that's when I was recruited by Schlitterbahn. But many of those key learnings have continued to, you know, serve us and serve me well today based on guest reaction and feedback. And fortunately for us, if you've ever come to visit us in San Antonio, we're, we offer full park operation. Because one of the things that we've learned throughout the years, specifically here in our market, is our guests love still riding thrill rides in December, as much as they do in July. And it's such yeah. a great time to visit. So if you choose to come visit us, what you'll see is not only do you see great lights and holiday shows and the specialty food and all the things that make a wintertime event exciting, but you also see that it, I can ride the Iron Rattler and Poltergeist and all of our great thrill rides. So it's just another great reason to visit. We're obviously weather permitting, it's, it's different per market, but really it was fun to develop a, a new event of that magnitude that we knew was loved, had a great history and legacy but how to create it new again and leading to uh, other fun innovations. Wow. What would be your favorite story of your time working at Kings Island? There, there's just so many. I mean, there, there's no doubt. One is just the collection of people that I've met because truly, if you look at where the Kings Island team has gone, we are pretty evenly spread from Six Flags to Cedar Fair to uh, Hershen. So if you look at those three properties, for example, Craig Ross, that I, was my GM back in the day, now works for, for Hershen. Tony Carvalano is now, he was in our rides department at Kings Island. He's now a general manager at Worlds of Fun, Oceans of Fun in Kansas City. Um, obviously, Mike Koontz. Mike was our finance guy back at Kings Island in the day and is now the 
the general manager, Jason McClure, who is also a finance person at Kings Island, running Cedar Point, now corporate. My, my first general manager there was Tim Fisher, who is now an EVP with Cedar Fair. So it's interesting to see where everyone is kind of moved. But in many ways, that Kings Island team was very special. Great, fantastic memories, just world-class folks. And it's just fun to see where everyone has gone and the roles that everyone has taken through the industry really to make all parks as great as we can. And I've really had the pleasure of taking those experiences and uh, being recruited and now working for Six Flags, helping elevate all of our parks and just making all of our parks the best that they could possibly be and the most entertaining, most fun and most thrilling uh, that we've ever seen before. Constantly moving the envelope forward and making it a better guest experience. Well, well thanks Jeffrey for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Hopefully there's some stories that are new. Hopefully there's some that you've heard before, but, but no doubt what's great for all of us in our industry is the best days are truly ahead. COVID has been a weird time for everyone on both sides of the equation, but it's great to see the excitement and the industry rebound and recover very quick and fast. But no doubt the excitement and the best days and the biggest innovations are still yet to come for all of us to ride together, which is going to be fun in itself. Most definitely. So down there at Six Flags, do you guys have a Six Flags Central uh, website that uh, follows specifically your park? We have, it's more of a Texas-based series of organizations. One, obviously, we have our, our South Central ACE folks. Mm -hmm. There's Thrill Seekers United. And, but there are a, a variety of smaller sites that basically cover us and uh, Six Flags Over Texas being the two predominant parks along with SeaWorld in our market. So you'll see a variety of sites, but there is not just a ES of Texas uh, exclusive site primary. Let me turn off my phone ringer. Well, it's my, my ringtone too, so I, was trying, I thought it was my phone. <laughs> Well, we really think, uh, thank you for coming on and uh, spending time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. We learned some stuff and it's always great to talk to past employees from the park and see where they are now. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do so. Oh my gosh, our pleasure. Well, hopefully you guys will truck on down the interstate and come see us at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas. I will let you know if we head that way. Well, next year we're turning 30. So it's a big 3-0. So Oh, wow. to see the celebration for our 30th anniversary. All right. Thank you. Exciting. Thanks again. My pleasure. Have a great day, guys. Keep in touch. Thank you for listening to the Kings Island Central podcast. KICentral.com is Kings Island's ultimate fan site. For more discussion about Kings Island and other amusement parks, join us over at KICentral.com.